I do want to thank you for the privilege of being here this morning to share with you and to thank you for the warm welcome for my family and me, or maybe I should say the warm and humid welcome. But I do appreciate all that you have done to help us to feel settled here. Encourage you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 139. And allow me to read that as we prepare our hearts for uh, God's word. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Join me as I lead us in prayer. Fathers, we gather here this morning. We know we are a desperate people. By ourselves, Lord, we can do nothing. We don't know ourselves. We cannot bridge the gap to you. And so we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for forgiveness of sins and new life. We thank you for the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives to open our eyes to see reality, to see the glory of the gospel, to see our sin, to enable us to repent and to turn to you and to repent and trust in you each day in renewed faith. And so, Father God, we pray for your Holy Spirit to do the work that only he can do in our hearts, to soften our hearts and open our eyes 
that we might walk with you and glorify you this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I've been a Christian for over 30 years. I've been a full-time pastor for almost 22. But over the last two years, God has been in the process of bringing me on a spiritual journey. And I'm learning more of the gospel and the Christian life and my own heart in these last 24 months than the previous 20 combined. What's really shocked me the most is Understanding these things is more than just learning and studying. I've gone to college and had a degree in biblical studies and seminary. I've read tons of books over the years, but somehow I missed the reality of what was going on in my heart. And over the last few years, God has been revealing to me through the working of his Holy Spirit, through his word of of things in my life, in my heart that I I didn't see for years. Yeah, I don't know if that's an encouragement to you or a discouragement that you can be a Christian for 30 years or to be a pastor and miss some of the basic realities of what's going on in your heart But this psalm, Psalm 139, speaks to that and talks about God revealing to us the depths of our heart. But before we jump into Psalm 139, let me answer a question. What does the Bible mean by the term heart? We use the word all the time. Oftentimes we think of it in terms that the world does, of emotions, but it's much more than that. It's the seat of your being. It's your inner life. From it flow your desires, your habits, your belief. It includes your intellect, your will, your emotions. It's your thoughts, your choices, your feelings flow from your heart. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 4, verse 23, it says, Keep your heart with all vigilance. Another translation says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Your heart is where your deepest passions lie that motivate you to act and react, to feel and to respond. So oftentimes when we look at our Christian life, we think about our actions and our behaviors and and, uh, we don't recognize that our actions flow from our heart. That's what the Bible tells us. Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Mark, As was read earlier, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus tells us that what we treasure reveals our heart. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But oftentimes we don't know what's going on in our hearts. Sometimes we do something, we we wonder, where did that come from? Why did I lash out like that? Why did I say the thing that I said? Why did I give in to that temptation? Why am I even tempted by this or the other? There's something beneath our actions. There are motivations flowing from our heart. 
As believers, we have both godly desires and sinful desires in our hearts. Oftentimes we protest and we say, I don't know why I did that. That's not me. I remember reading a story about a basketball player who had said some things and they, it was caught on, on video and, and, and they were horrible things that he said. And he gave an interview and when he stood up, he said, I don't know where those came from because that is not me. But the Bible says, that is you. In fact, that reveals the real you. And so what we find in this psalm is that the God who knows all can reveal your heart to you if you ask. This morning we'll unfold three truths from Psalm 139. First, that God knows your heart. Second, that you don't know your, your heart. And lastly, that the Spirit enables you to know your heart. And so let's look at that, the first truth found in Psalm 139, found in verses 1 through 22, that, that God knows your heart. In verses 1 through 6, we see that God knows you intimately. He knows your activities, he knows your words, he knows your thoughts. We struggle because we want to be known, but we also fear being known. One friend of mine described it like this. On the one hand, we want people to come into our lives, and at the very same time, we're inviting people in. We're, with the other hand, pushing them away. And so this is the attitude of our hearts. We're afraid that if somebody gets too close, if they really know what's going on in the interior of our lives, we wonder, will they truly like me? We think to ourselves sometimes, you, you, you love me because you don't know me, but if you knew me, would you really love me? And oftentimes we think those very things about God, but God knows everything about you and he loves you completely. He says he knows when you sit down and when you rise up. He knows from the morning to the night. He knows everything that you go through, every thought, every word that's on your mouth. He knows you better than you know yourself. And David says, this is too wonderful for me. It's high, I cannot attain it. He, 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 it blows him away to the reality that God knows the depth of who he is. And he loves him. David tells us that God knows our circumstances in verses 7 through 12. He says, there's no place that you can go away from God's presence. He says he's there to guide and, and to protect. God says, I am still with you. I will never abandon you. I will never leave you. I am always for you and with you. There is no circumstance in your life, no place that you can be that God is not fully present there with you. The fears that you have, the insecurities that you have, the worries that you have, the uncertainty that you have, the things that you are afraid to tell, even those people that are close to you, God knows. He knows. David goes on to say, God knows your frame in verses 13 through 18. He personally put us together. He knit us together in our mother's womb. He knew exactly who you were. Even before your mother knew that she was pregnant, God already knew you. 
He knew the days that you would live. He knew the circumstances that you would be in. Nothing has caught him off guard in your life. Not one circumstance, not one choice, not one event. He knows them full well. God knows how weak and frail we are. He knows that we're but dust. He knows how prone to sin and temptation that we are. He knows how weak we are and how often we're prone to wander and prone to stray. He knows the purpose of our lives in every one of our days. David writes this psalm and he he wants us to know that God knows you. God knows the motivation of your heart. In 1 Samuel, the passage that was read, God had rejected Saul. And Samuel is sent to the house of Jesse. He's sent to to find the next king. And Jesse begins to parade his sons in. And Samuel looks and he sees this man. He sees one that looks stately and majestic. And he thinks to himself, surely this is the one. And, And God stops him and says, no. Don't look at his appearance or the height of his stature, for I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So often we're concerned about how we appear and how we carry ourselves and how we look, but God isn't concerned with that. He is concerned with the motivation and the intent of your heart. It's funny how we try to trick God sometimes. I find myself praying and thinking very carefully about the words that I use as if somehow God doesn't know what's really going on. And if I say the right things in the right way, maybe, maybe God won't catch the true intent of, of what's really going on. And We, we fool ourselves. We, we think that God doesn't know. And, and so often we're afraid to address the ugliness or the sinfulness, or the weakness of our hearts out of fear that God doesn't know. And maybe we would never say that, but sometimes our actions betray what we think. Notice again in verse 1. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. God isn't on a fishing expedition. It it isn't as if God is waiting for you to reveal what's going on in the interior of your lives. David says, God has already searched me. God already knows me. He knows everything already. When Adam and Eve were in the garden and they hid from God, it wasn't as if God didn't know where they were when he asked the question, where are you? He was waiting for Adam to admit what God already knew. And everything about you, God already knows. He knows what's going on in your heart. You are fully known from before your birth. And so David, first of all, here in this psalm, tells us that that God already knows your heart. He knows everything about you. But the reality of it is, is that we don't know our own hearts. Listen to what C.S. Lewis wrote over a half century ago. He says, When I come to my evening prayers and try to reckon up the sins of the day, 
Nine times out of ten, the most obvious one is some sin against charity, against love. He says, I have sulked or snapped or sneered or snubbed or stormed. And the excuse that immediately springs to my mind is that the provocation was so sudden and unexpected. I was caught off my guard. I had no time to collect myself. A little later he goes on and he makes this observation. He says, surely what a man does when he is taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of man he is. Surely what pops out before the man has time to put on a disguise is the truth. If there are rats in a cellar, you are most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness does not create the rats. It only prevents them from hiding. In the same way, the suddenness of the provocation does not make me an ill-tempered man. It only shows me what an ill-tempered man I am. The rats are always there in the cellar, but if you go in shouting and noisily, they will have taken cover before you switch on the light. Apparently, the rats of resentment and vindictiveness are always there in the cellar of my soul. Now, the cellar is out of reach of my conscious will. I can, to some extent, control my acts, but he says I have no direct control over my temperament or over my heart. Lewis is right. We get a glimpse of something sinful or ugly in our lives, and and we wonder, where did that come from? Somebody cuts us off in traffic, or our, our spouse irritates us, and why am I irritated? Why do I react the way that I do? We don't see or don't want to admit that that came from our hearts. In verse 23, David prays for God to search him, to search his heart. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. David prays for God to search his heart. Why why does he do that? Why does David ask this prayer saying, God, search my heart? He does because his heart's a mystery to him. And it's a mystery to us. Why do I do the things that I do? Why am I tempted in the way that I am? Why do I react or respond the way that I do? Why are my emotions, my emotional reaction the way that it is? You see, the Bible tells us that we have been made new creatures in Christ. We are genuinely new creatures in Christ, but we, as the late Anthony Hokema said, we are not totally new. We're in the process of sanctification. We're caught between the already and the not yet. Already we have been made new, but not yet have we been perfected. And so we are genuinely new creatures in Christ, but we're not totally new. And we deal with what the Bible tells us is indwelling sin. Paul in Romans 7 says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not know, uh, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. We don't like Paul to say that. We try to to come up with an explanation. Well, that was Paul as a a young Christian, or that was Paul as a Pharisee uh, before he was a Christian. We don't like the reality of the eminent apostle Paul saying that he still struggled and he didn't understand the depths of the motivations of his heart. 
At the end of his life, when he's writing to his young protege first, in 1 Timothy, he tells Timothy, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He doesn't say, well, I, I used to be a really bad sinner, but now... I, I have my act totally together, and that sin thing, I pretty well have it licked now, and I'm at the end of my life, and I'm, I'm really kind of mature. And, and I don't struggle with, with things. He says in the present tense, I am the chief of sinners. But most of us struggle believing what Paul said and what David said and how the Bible describes our own hearts because we're unaware of the depth of sin in our hearts. And oftentimes we are able to, in our Christian lives, to uh, convince ourselves we're not really that bad. If someone hurts me or offends me, what's my reaction? Uh, maybe inwardly I'm seething. Maybe inwardly I am, I am irritated, I am angry, I am upset, I am hurt, I want to lash out, I want to seek revenge, but I control myself. I, I, I put on a stoic face. I, I, I don't give a, appearance to the reality of what's going on in my heart. And then I pat myself on the back and I say, that's one of the fruits of the Spirit. I've just practiced self-control. Never stopping to ask ourselves, why was that reaction in my heart in the first place? And maybe I was able to control the outward manifestation of my sin. But why were those desires and reactions there in the first place? I never stopped to even question it because outwardly, I've appeared as a good Christian. But God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And the reality of it is, is we don't know what's going on in our hearts, and oftentimes we don't stop to ask the questions. David could see the enemies of God, and this, this always puzzled me. There's a passage, a section in here that I always kind of wrestled with and goes, it, it seems like kind of a non sequitur. It's like David's talking, and then all of a sudden he starts talking about the enemies of God. If you're reading through this, he says, God, you know me, you know where I am, you know where I've been, you, you've made me. And then all of a sudden he says, God, I hate your enemies. And I always kind of struggled with it. And honestly, at times I kind of just skipped over it in my mind, not trying to figure out how, to, how does this fit into the larger scheme of what the Holy Spirit inspired David to write. You see, David could see the enemies of God. He could see the sins in others. We're very good at seeing the sins of others. We're very good at pointing the finger of those who are outside the fellowship of God's people. We look in our culture and we see the headlines and we see the direction of where things are going. And it's very easy for us to identify. We see the reactions of our neighbors or our friends. And we don't see ours. You see, here's, here's what David says here. He says, he acknowledges the wickedness of, of, of these evil men. He says, God, I hate the sin in this world, and those who are your enemies are my enemies. What you hate, I hate. And David hates the evil in others, but then it causes to arrest him and say, but what about my own heart? 
What about the sin in my own heart? It's very easy to see the sin in others. But do I see the sin in my own heart? And so now we come to the last truth we find in this passage, that that the Spirit can enable you to know your heart. And what we're talking about here is not some psychological exercise in introspection. We are willfully blind to the depths of indwelling sin in our hearts. We look at ourselves and we have the tendency to minimize or rationalize or normalize or justify or or blame shift or, or deny our behavior. We're experts at giving excuses for the things that we do or then comparing them to others and by comparison we're not that bad. We blame shift. We give a reason for why we did what we did. Well, if you know if it wasn't for this... I wouldn't have reacted like that. So the fault isn't really with me, it's with my circumstance. It's with the person who cut me off, it's with my children, it's with my spouse. If everything would just be under my control and everyone would do what I want, I wouldn't sin. And so I'm not that bad. We're not talking about introspection of of uh, navel-gazing. We're not talking about that kind of, of, of introspection. In fact, if we, if we do that, apart from the working of the Holy Spirit, we, if we get a true glimpse of ourselves, we're going to be in despair. We'll be despondent. If we really get a glimpse of our hearts and see the depths of the reality of what motivates us and the sin that is still indwelling within us, we, we'll end in despair. Paul talks about a worldly grief that produces death. And left to ourselves, apart from grace, the only thing that we can do is despair. Sometimes we see the sin in our lives and we beat ourselves up emotionally. And then we think things will be okay. We think sometimes if we punish ourselves enough, then we'll be acceptable to God and he'll forgive us. We sin and we see our sin, but we think we can't go to God right now. And so we begin this this self-punishment trying to do emotional penance, like a good Catholic. But more often than not, we don't realize the depths of our sin. We don't see and get a real glimpse of what's going on, which leads to pride. And that was the problem with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were really good at seeing the sins of others, but they weren't good at seeing their own sins. You remember the story in Luke chapter 18 when Jesus talks about the, the, the publican and the sinner, the Pharisee. The, the Pharisee standing there, and this is what it says, standing by himself praying, he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners or unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And we look at this passage and we think to ourselves, Lord, I thank you I'm not like that Pharisee. How could he say that? He could, he could only say that because he doesn't see his own sin. And so apart from the working of the Holy Spirit, either we get a glimpse of the reality of, of, of the struggle with sin and we go to despair, or else we lie to ourselves and we don't face the reality of our sin and we become good Pharisees. And so we're neither talking about 
navel-gazing, introspection of, of despair or of pride, but of spirit-enabled seeing. This is what David prays. This verse is a dangerous prayer, so be forewarned. If you pray it, God will answer. Paul says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. As God has been working in my life over these last years, two of the things that he's revealed to me that motivate a lot of what I do are, are insecurity and pride. And you may wonder, how do those two go together? But they really, they, they go together quite nicely. On the surface, it seems like a contradiction, but, but they're really intimately in, interrelated. You see, I'm so afraid of what you might think of me and that you might not like me if you knew me that I hide. And I pretend to be somebody I'm not. I try to cover up my weaknesses and keep them from being exposed. Or I use my words or, or, or my intellect or my personality to hide my insecurity. And insecurity stirs in my heart a desire to protect and defend so I don't react and attack. But then why am I afraid for you to see who I am? And, and the reality it is is because I think a lot of myself. The reality of it is is at the heart it's pride. See, this is how it works. I, I think a lot of myself, and I want you to think a lot of me as well. I can't let you see who I really am, or else you'll think less of me and, and see the reality. And so I need to keep up appearances. I need to, to posture and pretend and, and to pose so that you think well of me because of the pride in my heart that's, that's covering my insecurity. So pride motivates me to say things to sound smarter than I am. But the Holy Spirit leads to a repentant faith. What is genuine repentance? True repentance doesn't leave us groveling in our sin. It's neither self-punishment nor self-promotion. It's neither groveling like a beggar and hopes God might forgive us or standing tall like a Pharisee. It's neither despair or self-delight. It does not lead to condemnation or condescension towards others. As the late Jack Miller quipped often, we have to face the fact that we're worse than we think we are. In fact, he says, cheer up. You're worse than you think you are. True repentance is not just being broken over the consequences of our sin. True repentance is being broken over the pain that our sin has caused God and others. And that's what it means to see our hurtful ways. True repentance says, Lord, first let me see the log in my own eye before I see and help the brother to get the speck of sawdust out of his. True repentance is a change in attitude that results in a change of direction. It's a change in the posture of your heart towards God and towards sin. True repentance is a gift of grace that results in rejoicing. David says, that, and lead me in the way everlasting. Ultimately, his eye was on heaven and the reality of the presence of God forever. And so David prays this dangerous prayer to say, oh God, search me. Try me. 
See if there be any hurtful way in me. I hate the sins of others, but do I hate my own sin? Do I see my own sin to even recognize it, to repent and to turn away from it in order to turn to you in renewing grace? And we can only do that because of the cross. We can only do that because of Jesus. We can run to the Father because we know that He loves us. When we look at the cross, we see the love of the Father that sent His Son to die on our behalf, to pay the penalty for our sins. We look to the cross and we see Jesus. We see ourselves forgiven and justified. And so we don't have to hide from our sin or our shame or our struggle or our past or our present because God knows you full well and he has made full provision for that sin in Christ. You can run to your father and receive his embrace. And ultimately what begins in repentance ends in worship. It ends in rejoicing in the reality that we will be with God forever. And we can look forward not to the struggle with sin that we will have this side of eternity, this side of death or Christ's return, but we can look with anticipation to know that the best is yet to be. And we're caught between the already and the not yet, but we look with anticipation. God, how can you love a mess like me? You see, that's the gospel. That's the good news. If you think you have it all together, you don't need a savior. Jesus came for the bruised and the broken and the battered. He came for the downtrodden and those in despair. He came for people just like you and me. The Christian life is a life of repentant faith. I'm a mess, God loves me, and God's at work in my life. I'll be a mess until the day I die. But praise God for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we face the reality that you know us full well, before we woke up this morning, you knew this day you knew the words that were on our mouths before we even knew them. You know where we are. You know where we've been. You know where we're going. Lord, you know our frame, that we are weak and frail and prone to sin. And Father, we are so quick to see the sins of others. We're so quick to see the sin that is so prevalent in this world. We're so quick to see the sin in our spouse or our children or our parents or our friend, our roommate. But so slow to see our own sin and to wrestle with that. Lord, I pray. I pray for myself. I pray for each of us. Not that we will go in some introspection, but that we will cry out to you for you to open our eyes, to see that we are worse than we think we are, to see the depths of our sin, of what motivates us from our heart, but also in that same instant to see the glory of the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are forgiven so that we can run to you. And so ultimately, Lord, I pray that you will help us to preach the gospel to ourselves and that we will stand in this grace that you've given us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.